the series uh, we're going through in Mark, I, I just call it Just Jesus, Just Jesus, and that's ultimately what life has to come down to for us. But we're going to actually see uh, Jesus standing pretty alone here. It's just Jesus in our focus here today. He's standing alone, and it's a moment that makes me remi- reminds me of those commercials on TV, like, do not try this at home. Because here we're going to see Jesus yelling and destroying furniture. So once again, do not try this at home. It's a moment that's not a miracle moment. It's a moment of immense confrontation and courage on Jesus' part. It sets up this way in, uh, in Mark 11 and verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem... Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. So we're located here in the courts of the temple in Jerusalem. The, uh, there were several sort of levels or layers of courts, and he'd be in the outermost part called the Court of the Gentiles, which is very, very large. And, and he, he entered the courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. So Jesus is literally cleaning house. I just want to say to you, if you open your life to to Jesus today, uh, he loves you more than you could possibly imagine, but he's going to clean house at the same time. There's a lot of accumulation and trash. He's going to clean house. And he kind of gives us a prophetic picture of this. He's in the temple courts, and he starts cleaning house. And as he taught them, the next verse, verse 17, he said, there are going to be two really important statements here. Is it not written, first of all, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So we're just going to edit that away for just a moment. And then his second statement, but you have made it a den of robbers. You've made it a den of robbers. And quite literally, quite literally, uh, people were being ripped off in the temple courts, um, and the priests were benefiting, skimming off the top. Uh, You weren't supposed to bring sacrifices from long distances when you made pilgrimage to the temple in this time. So so you had to buy, and uh, you had to buy the doves and and the lambs, and And, of course, you're being overcharged for that. And you also had to pay for them in shekels, uh, not the local currency of where you lived. And uh, so people were also getting dinged on the exchange rate. I was was on a trip overseas uh, a couple months ago, and I realized I was about to leave the U.S. and fly into this country, and I had no local currency, and I... I at least need a little local currency. So, you know, I, I gave, I knew I'd get ripped off because it was in the airport here in America, you know, and it's just not as good as using your bank card overseas. But uh, sure enough, I gave them $80 in cash and got what I considered $60 worth of foreign currency back. And they are making a profit off the exchange rate. This was happening in the temple. And people who were worshipers were being ripped off financially and taken advantage of where they had no other recourse. And so no wonder Jesus said, you've turned this into a den of robbers. 
But there's more happening here <clears throat> because Jesus is actually quoting a line when he said den of robbers, he was quoting out of a line in a sermon that the prophet Jeremiah preached several hundred years earlier in the first temple that was later destroyed. And God tells Jeremiah, could you imagine him asking you to do this? God tells Jeremiah to not go into the temple like Jesus did here, but stand outside the gates and say to all the worshipers coming in, you guys are a bunch of corrupt hypocrites. <laughs> that, that would help your social media standing, I'm sure. Talk about a heap of abuse on your head. And Jeremiah starts preaching, and he points fingers at these worshipers, and he says, you're a bunch of, you're, you steal, you murder, you sin sexually, and during the week you go after demonic idol gods. And yet you come into the temple to the true and living God and you are saying to yourself, well, as long as we have the temple where the honor of God's name is, we are safe. And God responds back in a question through Jeremiah, like, say what? Are you saying that just because you have the building where my name is, that you're safe? while all along you are making it a quote-unquote den of robbers. And so when Jesus says you're making this a den of robbers, it's like clicking on a hyperlink in an email. You know, you click on the link and it brings up a website. They all would have understood it. It was more than you're ripping people off on the exchange rates here. It was you, you are just like those people Jeremiah preached to. You, you, and the God who hates hypocrisy more than you do, by the way. So don't reject him because of the hypocrites that might be around you. Because he hates hypocrisy more than you do. He said, you have turned my house with the honor of my name into a den of robbers. You're stealing from me in every possible way as you live in rebellion to my will and then do religious worship in this temple as some kind of tokenism. So he's saying that. When Jesus said, den of robbers, he, it's like clicking on the link that takes us back to that sermon and the larger indictment, but he's not done. Before he says, you made this a den of robbers, he says something else that's also like a link we click on, except it takes us not back to Jeremiah, but back to the prophet Isaiah, because he says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Before he says, this is a den of robbers, he says, my house will become a house of prayer for all nations. It takes us back to Isaiah chapter 56 and this paragraph that's on the screen. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. House of prayer was code for the temple. I used to think House of Prayer meant a building we build and then schedule prayer meetings. No, it meant the place, the presence of God, the place you can meet with God, the place you come to worship him. And he was talking about sometimes the temple in the Old Testament called the House of Prayer. And he says, foreigners, those who are not Jews, th those who are outside of that original Old Testament covenant. He said, my heart is that the Gentiles, my heart is that both Jews and Gentiles, my heart is that foreigners will come and they will bind their hearts to me. And they will come to my temple 
to my house of prayer. And their burnt offerings and their sacrifices, Isaiah goes on to say, will be accepted on my altar for, and this is what Jesus quotes, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And so when Jesus quoted that, it's like clicking on another link that reminds us the whole point is that foreigners, those far from access to God, need to have a welcoming place into relationship with him. This is his heart, that my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. He's not talking about bake sales in a church lobby. He's talking about his house being a house of prayer in which all the hindrances are taken away for the nations to have access to his message. And they were in, as I mentioned, the temple courts. Jesus positioned himself, according to Mark, in the temple courts. They were transporting merchandise through the courts. Mark said Jesus had to stop them from doing that. He was kicking over the tables of the money changers, kicking over the tables where people were buying animals and getting ripped off. He was kicking all over those things. He was more than defying corruption in the temple. He He was doing this in the court of the foreigners, in the court of the Gentiles, the place that was supposed to give access to the nations to come and worship. Instead, it's full of hubbub and animals everywhere and confusion and loud noise and people transporting goods. I mean, how could the nations come? And there's something that just rises up in Jesus and he hyperlinks us to, to Isaiah chapter 56 and said, this is not the heart of God. The heart of God is that all nations would have access to me. That's why Jesus just, after he died, buried, rose again, before he ascended to the right hand of the Father until the day Jesus returns. He said in Matthew 28, we call this the Great Commission. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's the ruler, he's the king, he's the living hope, he's it all. Therefore, therefore, and then he gives us our mission so I would call it the great commission. We commission with God. It's the last thing he told us to do other than to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to accomplish this. He said, therefore, go and make disciples of what? All nations. Why? For my house will become a house of prayer for all nations. For Isaiah had the heart of God. For foreigners will come and they will bind their heart to me. This is what we long for that those who presently have no access to the gospel, that all the obstacles would be moved away, like Jesus kicking over those tables. All the obstacles will be moved away. The great missionary pastor from Toronto, Canada, Oswald J. Smith, wrote a convicting little book, The Cry of the World. And he writes, we should have kept before us our Lord's post-resurrection commands. That's what we just read. Go and make disciples of all nations. We should have evangelized the world, he said. Otherwise, we have no grounds for our existence as a church. There's no reason why we should have churches unless they are reaching out to those who have never heard. Now, sometimes we say amen in this church, and sometimes we say ouch. So everybody said ouch. While I was pastoring in Canada for a few years, I had the privilege of 
listening to a keynote address by the World Missions Director of the Australian Assemblies of God. I've never forgotten it. I still have the notes of that message. I look at them once in a while. And um, you have permission to say ouch to these as well. His sermon was simply entitled, If I Were the Devil. He said, if I were the devil, I would marginalize missions. Perhaps let it be a program, but not a passion. Ouch. He said, if I were the devil, I would get Christians to focus on this world and not the next one. Just be overwhelmed with this week and this world and what I have. Forget that there really is a heaven and there really is a hell. There really is an eternity. Just focus on this world. If I were the devil, I would convince everyone that there's plenty of time. Oh, Jesus isn't coming for a long time. Oh, we got plenty of time. Oh, don't bother me now. Not this week, not this month, not this year. I'll put off what I need to do to later. There's plenty of time. If I was the devil, I'd convince people with the lie that there's plenty of time. If I were the devil, I would entice Christians to love earthly treasures more than heavenly treasures. Whew. Ouch. He said, if I was the devil, I would teach that the Holy Spirit has been sent to bless me in my life instead of help me to reach the world with the gospel. That's what the devil may say. But here's what Jesus said. Kicking over tables, stopping the trafficking of merchandise in the very place where the nations should be gathering to worship God. And he says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And in Jesus' name, I believe that's going to be the end of the story. That his gospel's going out. We just heard Kirk this morning. <laughs> wow, I love it. A healthy church within walking distance of every South African. I pray for churches to blossom in China and Russia, even though America calls them their enemies. I pray for churches to blossom throughout Latin America, throughout all of Africa, throughout Europe, and it sounds in Europe a few weeks ago, and it, you could almost taste the secularism. And, but Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Why? Because I want to give access to all nations to hear the gospel. So when we see Jesus' anger and, and his physical violence literally destroying furniture and yelling over the commotion and the noise and being like, unlike we see him at any other time, we see the passion of God's heart to turn over everything that may keep the nations from coming to him. And so I started asking myself, I wonder if, I wonder if Jesus walked into my house, whether there'd be some tables he'd kick over. I wonder if he walked into Central Assembly, whether there'd be some tables he'd kick over. And probably not to your surprise, the answer is yes, there would be. And I just wrote a few of them down as we do the last part of this message today. Let's turn over some tables. Let's turn over the tables of indifference and neglect. Indifference means I just don't care. I know people are lost, but I just don't care. I can't do much about it anyway. And so I'm not even going to try. So we end up living in this condition 
of indifference to the eternal destiny in hell of lost people and excusing our responsibility so we neglect it instead of embracing our responsibility to do what Jesus told us to do, to make disciples of all nations. There was a businessman in the first service. Uh, he was telling me a couple of weeks ago, he's pretty high up, but he's not the owner of his company. He was telling me this company he works for um, uh, is, is really, it changed ownership, and he said the new owners are really tough to work for. I mean, we have this extremely dysfunctional culture in our office because they're so hard to work for. They treat people so poorly. And he said, I'm about done with it. He said, I do not like going to work. I don't want to go to work a lot of mornings. I'm done with it. And I had planned, Pastor, you know, I told you last year, I had planned on stepping away from that job, taking early retirement. I've got options by now. But he said, I've decided to stay another half year. The reason is, for some reason, they, they know I'm a Christian. For some reason, I'm having all these people coming into my office that are going through life trauma. Most of them don't know Jesus, but they're asking for prayer. They need a man of God around them. And he said, I don't like coming to work. It's dysfunctional. My bosses are not good leaders. But I'm staying in my job because God's given me a voice into people's lives for him. You know what? The tables of what I'd prefer got knocked over there. It's an amazing thing. I was touching a number of years ago. I, I interact some with missionaries from Vietnam, and they're using some of our resources here and uh, from the church, and and they're doing a great job opening up Vietnam. There was one one of those missionaries said, "When I was 16 years old, I didn't feel gifted. I didn't feel called. I didn't feel qualified. I don't know if he went to youth camp or came and was prayed for at church, but he said, "When I was 16 years old, the Lord baptized me in the Holy Spirit." As I began to speak in tongues, which of course is a sign that God is giving us his spirit to become his mouthpiece to the world. And he said, God just filled me with the Holy Spirit. And he said, it was something, the word he used was, was broken. It was like God started breaking my heart for the condition of people who did not know Jesus and were lost. Our hearts can be pretty indifferent other, otherwise. But he said, God's spirit began to break my heart. And uh, and, and, and he said, I, I, I started, it was just, it became, he used words like inexplicable and indistinguishable. This is what God, thank God for a spirit that can take the rotten indifference in our hearts and light it to flame until we start seeing the world like God sees the world. Not like CNN sees the world. Not like Fox News sees the world. Not like Newsmax sees the world. Not like Routers sees the world. Not like the Wall Street Journal sees the world. I mean, the world, they see people in terms of enemies and, and friends and conflicts. We see the world in terms of are people saved or are they lost? And the Holy Spirit doesn't let us be indifferent anymore to the lostness of the world. That's the passion you see in Jesus as, as he just said, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Get rid of everything that's standing in the way of the nations coming to me. And I think that, that takes us to another table. It's the table of prejudice and preference. The table of preference and prejudice that God maybe wants to kick over in our lives. I think the litmus test is do we have people in our lives 
many of us, most of our friends are like us. But do you have people in your life who are not like you? Is the Spirit of God just exercising your loving muscles to, to go out and to be wider in your inclusiveness? People of other races, people of a different socioeconomic level or background than you, people who are not like you. This always will be where the heart of God will take. We tend to default to our preferences. I just want to be around people who I like. And we see somebody for the first time, and sometimes our first thought is not how can I make a connection with them. Our first thought is, is you know, boy, they're so different than me. But this is where it's the heart of God. This is the passion of Jesus is kicking over tables. He said, I want to kick over the tables of preference. I want to kick over the tables of prejudice. So you do watch the news, and, and it does condition you to fear the people of certain nations that maybe want to attack our nations. And you know what? There's a place for the politics. There's a place for international relations and, and all of that sort of thing. But we look at it by saying, but God never taint my heart against any human being whether they be an illegal immigrant, whether they be a terrorist, whether they be from a country I've never visited and I don't like the sound of, my God, you want all the nations to come to your presence and to your house. Maybe we need to kick over the tables of distractions and misplaced priorities. These things are keeping the nations from the gospel. And it's easy. I, I want to tell you this is really a tough one too. Our lives are pretty filled with a lot of responsibilities that are important. God's called you to where you are. You're God's person wherever you are. There's finances that need to be managed. There's kids that need to be cared for. There's parents that, that, that need caregiving. And, they're, they're, you know, and then there's entertainment everywhere that we think we need and you know, maybe more than we need it. And there's just distractions everywhere. And we no longer fight to keep the most important things in our lives important. And I found when keeping my top priorities, the top priority is no longer a weekly battle for me, that I'm probably just coasting. And less important things are probably the things that are most important. I mean, I used to say, I can tell what's really important to you if you just give me a few minutes with your calendar book and your checkbook. Well, these days, I don't have a physical calendar book, and I rarely use a checkbook anymore. It's all on my phone. But if I could have a few minutes with your calendar app and your banking app, I wouldn't see good intentions. <laughs> we tend to drown in good intentions. I'd see what's really important to you. And um, I just want to be a person who's given my money away so that people have access to the gospel. I want to be somebody who's given my time away to investing in people and caring for people and sharing Christ with people and doing all of these things. I want to tell you, uh, there, there is everything else in the world that can replace that. And so we find ourselves no longer living on mission. Oh, pastor, that doesn't sound very fun. But God wants us living on mission. He's not scolding us. He's just showing us the passion he has as he cleanses that temple court for people to be able to have access to the gospel.
Here's the last one. Thank God this is the last one. Oh, Lord Jesus. I, I think there's some tables of false teaching and substitute gospels that need overturning as well. False teaching and substitute gospels. And social media, of course, propagates all of this as television has over the last few decades. And I hear about prosperity, health and wealth gospels. I hear about social gospels. I hear about liberation theologies. Lately, I've been hearing a lot about the inclusive gospel. And uh, I want to tell you, there's only one true gospel. There is some truth in those others, but they're off-center, and they're mixed with error. But here is what the Apostle Paul tells us is the true gospel. It's 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and in which you have taken your stand. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ, number one, Christ died for our sins. Can I hear a hallelujah in the house? He came and he died for our sins. That's not the gospel. That's the gospel. Helping people feel better is part of the good works, the flow of the gospel, but it's not the gospel. Gospel work is telling people that somebody died for all your failure and sin. And that he was buried, he really did die, and that he, thank God, rose again on the third day. He was buried and he raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that's why Paul, in another letter, the letter of Romans, could describe the gospel this way. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. This is Romans 5. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. That while we were still what? We had blown it. We deserved nothing from you. I mean, somebody might dare to die for a worthy person, but we were unworthy. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since we have now been justified by his blood, that made, made right with God through the price he paid at the cross, how much more will we be saved from God's wrath through him? See, God's wrath is real. It's politically incorrect these days, but it's real because God's more concerned about justice and righting the wrongs of evil than even you and I are. So his wrath is real. But Jesus preempted the wrath of God when he died in our place. And I want to say, that's the gospel. Let's kick over the tables of everything that either distorts that or substitutes that with something else. This is the message. It's as old-fashioned as 2,000 years ago, and yet it's as current as today. That's why we give to our footprint fund. That's why guys like Kirk Spain and Marlene are doing what they're doing. It's because... Jesus wants to give the nations access to this one life-changing thing. Jesus died for us. He was buried, and he rose again. And that message, we give our lives to proclaiming to the, to the world. It may mean you never move out of Springfield, but it, mean, it, but it does mean you live with a passion for Jesus' mission and an availability to whatever you have and wherever you are, for whatever place you are, you contribute to that mission. And you just let Jesus begin to love people through you.
to all the people around you because you're on mission. Wherever you go on a Tuesday afternoon, a Thursday morning, you're on mission. You, you realize it's the gospel. It's, it's the gospel that Jesus wants people to know and respond to. And that's why Jesus, after damaging furniture and yelling at people, in all that passion, he's saying, ah, I want my house to be a house of prayer for all the nations. And let's get rid of everything that's in the way of that. Hallelujah.